This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of March 22, 2021. This is the first of two weeks that will be hosted by Dr. Oz, and uh, winnings and consolation prizes uh, will be matched by Jeopardy uh, with a donation to Health Corps, which is Dr. Oz's charity. So on Monday, March 22, we have the contestants David Edington, an operations manager from Long Beach, California. Catherine Peters, a Research Center Executive Director from Carborough, North Carolina, and Nick Casconi, an orthopedic physician assistant originally from Queens, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,801. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories Boots on the Ground, Words in Books, Animals, Sleepy Time, Egg, and MacGuffin. Um... And if that's not a term you're familiar with, a, a MacGuffin is the the object that is being sought in a in a movie or I guess a book, maybe mm-hmm. also. Yeah, a narrative. Yes, some of the boards felt kind of I don't know, kind of kind of off to me this week. But it could just be a different host and a different sort of a, adjusting to a different cadence, you know? Yeah, I got that. I got that sensation uh, from from some of the episodes and it seemed like some of the contestants were whether they would be that way with, you know, Alex Trebek or not. Yeah. Off is a good way to put it. Like not, not Mm -hmm. really like flowing. Yeah. That's a, that's a good term. Yeah. Did you ever have a Tamagotchi? I had, I think I had a Gigapet, not a Tamagotchi. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? uh, I did not have either. And I was super jealous of all the kids that did. But I did not work up the courage to ask my parents to buy me one. Uh, mm-hmm. Because usually the answer when I would ask for them to buy me something like that is like, why do you need that? Be, well, because other kids have it. They'd be like, that's not important to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, essentially like, well, you can ask their parents to buy you one then. Mm-hmm. That's at the thousand dollar level of egg for anyone who didn't remember it. Uh, The name of this egg-shaped gadget, a virtual pet, comes from Japanese elements for egg and watch. That's a Tamagotchi. And that's a little, little, little virtual pet that you would uh, raise and take care of by pressing one of two buttons. Mm -hmm. And then when it died, you were heartbroken. (laughs) We were easily amused in the 90s. Yeah. Now you see sixth graders with iPhones that are like, ugh, I'm so bored. Like, are, how can yeah. you be bored? How can you possibly be bored in your life? You have the life? entire universe in your pocket. Right? Like, hey, there's no, you don't know what boredom is, kid. Uh, when I was your age, we had, like, a little pixelated, like, black and white little animal cartoon with two buttons. And we liked it. And we were happy about it. Mm-hmm. We said, thank you. <laughs> Uphills both ways. Daily Double number one is in the sleepy time category. It's at the $1,000 level. Clue number 12. Nick finds it. 
he is at 800. Catherine is also at 800, and David is at negative 600. And he bets the maximum of 1,000. Gets the clue. A joke about how dull the Anglican 39 articles are is an early reference to this phrase for a short doze. And Nick doesn't know. He guesses what is a nap. But that is 40 winks, which hmm. I guess I guess from 39 to 40 you could get that. But that, that seemed a b- rather obscure to me. Yeah. Yeah, so he drops down, but he makes a good uh, he makes a good push the rest of the round. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Nick is back to thirty two hundred, tied with Catherine for at thirty two hundred, and David is at sixteen hundred. So kind of a low scoring first round. And we get the double Jeopardy categories: twentieth century art and artists, initially yours, history, R and B and soul hits, from A to Y, and Baywatch. Baywatch, of course, being about bays, not about the show Baywatch. Sadly. <laughs> Can't get enough hassle, huh? There's a lot of kind of classic Jeopardy fodder mm-hmm. on this board. Hopper and Nighthawks. Yeah, although it didn't actually say Nighthawks this time, but it's still... That's true. Hopper. Oh, yep, you're totally right. The $2,000 level of 20th century art and artists. This 20th century American artist depicted loneliness in his isolated urban figures, as in Automat. Uh, and Nick got that one. It's Hopper. But yeah, I guess they I guess they leveled up the difficulty a little bit by not referencing his uh, kind of most famous yeah. work. Mm-hmm. I was pleased with myself for getting the... Uh, triple stumper of Baywatch. The huge tides of this bay between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia have created formations known as flower pot rocks, and they had images. The the bay between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia is the Bay of Fundy. For the Fundy times you have there. Yeah. Let's go with that. (laughs) Um... The second Daily Double comes up in the history category at the $1,200 level, and it's pretty early. It's the sixth pick. Catherine finds it and wagers 2,000 of her 5,600. She's in a good lead at this point with Nick at 3,200 and David at 2,800. And she gets the clue. Sued in 1455 by a man who had loaned him hundreds of guilders, he lost his printing equipment. And she correctly responds, who is Gutenberg? Poor Gutenberg. And no one no one remembered him after that, you know. Lost to obscurity <laughs> for the rest of history. Just- Absolutely forgotten. Hear that, kids? Always pay your debts. Like a like a Lannister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay them like Lannisters. Don't do it. And daily double number three is pick number twenty. It's in the Baywatch category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Nick finds it. He is back at four thousand. Catherine has worked her way up to sixteen thousand eight hundred and. David is at 5,200, and he bets it all, which is really the only option he got there. Mm-hmm. He gets the clue, the Bay of Navarino is a nearly landlocked bay of this Greek sea, which a two-letter goddess once swam. And he gets it correct with what is the Ionian Sea. And uh, with, a, with a few more correct after that, he's in a much better position as we head into Final Jeopardy, although Catherine is still in a solid lead with 16,800. Uh, Nick is at 10,000. David's at 6,000. 
And we have the Final Jeopardy category Shakespearean references and the clue. This name, given to UK labor strife in December 1978 and January 1979, was taken from the first line of a Shakespeare history play. David started writing something down. Um, all he got is what is crawl uh, or something like that. I, some of the letters were a little hard to make out and I'm not sure where he was heading with it. And I think he had maybe thought better of it. He would, he would not expand on what he was thinking <laughs> and he wagered 4,001. So he drops down to 1,999. Nick uh, started to write, but did not finish uh, what was O for a muse of fire. Uh, that was incorrect anyway. Um, and he wagered 9,000, so he dropped down to 1,000. I think that's too big of a wager for this situation. Mm-hmm. But he did, I mean, he did need to, he was going to need to get it right to win. Sure, yeah. Unless Catherine made a wagering error. Still, like, l- landing above, just above her, I think, would have given him second place instead of third and protected him better if she had made a wagering error. So Catherine has gotten the correct answer, though. Uh, She responds, what is the winter of our discontent? That's correct. And she's wagered 3201. That's a cover bet. Uh, And so she is our winner going into Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Amal Dorai, a product manager originally from Lexington, Massachusetts. Claire Neiman, a registered nurse from Seattle, Washington, and Catherine Peters, a research center executive director from Carborough, North Carolina, who just won $20,000 plus one. And Jeopardy round categories are brand mascots, nurses, spacey sayings, Christian glossary, have a drink at, and the prancing pony. Is that a reference to something? Prancing pony. Is that from Lord of the Rings? Yes, it is the yep. in mm-hmm. Brie. Yes. All right. Claire, not surprisingly, did well in the nurses category. Uh, mm-hmm. She kind of got lucky with that uh, that category coming up on her game. She is a registered nurse, as you just said. Um, and she got three of these five. One turned into a triple stumper. The triple stumper was a Civil War nurse, Dorothea Dix also worked to help people with this condition, often kept in, quote, cages, closets, cellars. Um, She tried what is leprosy, um, but they were looking for mental illness. I had guessed schizophrenia. My guess is that they would have taken that or other sort of more specific. Probably. Mental illnesses. Yeah. They probably won't ask you to be less specific. (laughs) Right. Right. As a Christian preacher... Um, I imagine you did fine in the Christian glossary category because I, th- I, did, I yes. thought they were mostly mostly gettable. Uh, the $600 level, I had a question about. Agape mm. is the Christian concept of this, sometimes called charity. Claire said, was credited with the correct response with brotherly love. Yeah. But Greek I think... should be philos, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Agape and uh, like phileo or, or like what or yeah uh, phileo i think is the verb i'm trying to remember how that how the noun is uh for that in greek but yeah uh, uh, brotherly love is is generally a different greek word for love um mm-hmm. 
Yeah, C.S. Lewis famously, uh, I don't know how famously, C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Four Loves, talking about uh, four different Greek words that are used for love and what, you know, like what each of those kind of means. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there is a different one that is brotherly love. Agape is... Typically, more like usually? the unconditional kind of. Yeah, like, it's like it's like unconditional, like yeah, and is sort of like used for God's love for us and ideally our, our love for each other. But yeah, no, it's it. I was surprised they accepted brotherly love. Um, Just yeah. thought I'd bring that um, up. Yep, absolutely. No, you're you are correct. We also had um, a triple stumper in that category at the $400 level. The clue was a cathedra is one of these objects used by a bishop. Catherine tried what is a church. Amal tried what is a hat. Claire tried what is a mitre. Uh, a mitre is the hat that a bishop wears. Um, mm. The correct response here is a chair or a throne. A cathedral is the building where uh, like the seat of the bishop is. So that one was tricky for a $400 clue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we get the Daily Double as the very last pick of the round at the $1,000 level of Spacey Sayings. Catherine finds this one and wagers 1000 of her $4,000. Um, Claire is at 5600 at this point. Amal is at 2200 And Catherine gets the clue. When a youngster has trouble adapting to adulthood, it's this three-word phrase, like when the rocket doesn't make it off the pad. And she correctly responds, what is failure to launch? Mm -hmm. So she ends up with 5,000. The other two's scores are the same as we go into Double Jeopardy, where we have the categories number one lyrics, border towns, crass warfare, books of the 1980s, sold at auction, and six-letter words with S in quotation marks. I enjoyed the crass warfare category. Uh, yeah, those were those were fun war clues as much as there can be. <laughs> I liked the twelve hundred dollar clue in that category. This exiled Carthaginian general was mad at Eumenes the Second, an ally of Rome, and catapulted pots full of snakes at him in a sea po- sea battle. Amal got got that one. It was Hannibal, but I just <laughs> the pots full of snakes in a catapult, yeah. which <laughs> which great. you know is awesome in and of itself. But think about the logistics of that. Who's your snake supplier? Where do you get pots full of snakes from? And you have to, I guess, keep them on your boat. Yeah, like the, you can't improvise pots full of snakes <laughs> launched from your boat. You have to be ready to right? go with that. that. Yeah, no, yeah. you're totally right. That is a plan but no, if thing. I were, if, if I believe that if I were a, a sailor in a sea battle and that was what happened, I would be like, and into the water I go. Yeah, like, well, <laughs> see ya. I, this is the yeah. snake's boat now. I hope they know how to sail. <laughs> uh, we get Daily Devil number two in that category. Uh, it's just the next clue down at the $1,600 level. Pick number 13. Uh, Amal finds it. He's at 4,600. Catherine's at 5,400. Claire is in the lead at 8,400. Uh, and he wagers 3,000. The clue is, the USA's ghost army kept the Axis on its heels with inflatable M4Vs, 93 pounds, instead of the real thing's 32 tons. 
Uh, and he thinks about it for a moment, but he gets it right with what are tanks? Yes. Inflatable tanks. Mm hmm. It's great. Yeah. And Daily Double number three comes up in Border Towns at the $1,600 level. And Amal finds this one also at the, at the 19th pick. He has 12,800 at this point and wagers 2,800 of it. Catherine's at 6,200. Claire's at 8,400. And he gets the clue. A city appropriately called These Falls sits on Minnesota's northern border. And he correctly responds, what are international falls? Mm-hmm. He seems to know that one cold. He, he kind of like smiled during the... Clue, yeah. So. Yep. It's good to see. So at the end of the double jeopardy round... Amal has a lock game. He is at 19,600. Claire's at 6,000. Catherine's at 5,400. And Amal had that, had a very, a very large buzzer technique. Mm. Which I'm not criticizing. Like Everyone has their buzzer technique. We, I think we are pretty, pretty firmly on record on this podcast for like, buzz in how you buzz in. That should not yep. be the thing you're worried about when you're up on stage. Mm-hmm. The um, question is, does it work? Yeah. Does it work for you? Great. That's totally fine. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he just did. So uh, they get the Final Jeopardy category, the Olympics, and the clue, the City of Angels hosted the Olympics twice, the second time this many years after the first. And man, this was yeah, this was extremely obscure. Uh, yeah, agreed. It was, it was a triple stumper. Uh, Catherine wrote, what is Los Angeles? Uh, which I the, the clue is clearly asking for a number of years mm-hmm. but the fact that they didn't just say los angeles i guess to make it a little i don't know i don't know it's another thing you have to figure out is they're talking about los angeles but like come on uh so she was tripped up by that which was incorrect uh she wagered 42 70 mm-hmm. claire wrote what is 64 years which is incorrect she wagered 59.99 so she dropped down to one dollar uh so last place and Amal wagered 5,000, uh, not risk as lock. He wrote, what is 28? But it's 52. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Dr. Oz explains, the first one was in 1932 and the second one in 1984. And there's another one in 2028 coming up. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you just have to know those dates cold. Which, yep. It's trivia. I know, like, Olympics, Olympic cities are, they're knowable trivia, but... There was no entry point for that clue. Yeah. There was there was no way to You just had that to know out. you had to know both dates. And like as a person who has spent some time with flashcards that just had the location of the Olympics on one side and the date on the other, like I was not going to get this one either. I guess one thing that this has going for it that other final Jeopardy clues do not is that you can take a random guess and you've got like with with uh with reasonable assumptions you've got about a four percent chance of getting your random guess correct because uh, it's going to be a multiple of four that's less than a hundred. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there's just no real way in here. Yeah. If, if I were a contestant that day, I'd have been I'd have been very upset with that with that final jeopardy of course you mm-hmm. know i guess luckily it didn't matter because it was a lock game so yeah it's just it strikes me as not a great final jeopardy question yeah so on wednesday we have the contestants john marshall an attorney originally from hot springs arkansas 
Bonnie Hagen, a product support representative from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Mm. And Amal Dorai, a product manager originally from Lexington, Massachusetts, whose one-day cash winnings total 14600 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, I Love a Parade, The Plant World, The Nebula Awards, About That Song, The Problem Is, and Beyond Me. All the responses will follow me in the dictionary, starting with M-E. So they will follow Emily in the dictionary. Yes, they all follow me. Me? Um, Had a triple stumper in The Problem Is... At the $400 level, uh, David Hume delved into the theological conundrum known as the problem of this. Is God willing to prevent it but not able? Um, And John guessed what is the trolley problem, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which I thought was a great guess. Uh, I feel like the trolley problem used to be this obscure thing, and then the Mm -hmm. good place happened, and now everyone talks about and jokes about the trolley problem all the time. Yes. Which is is wonderful. Uh, The trolley problem is not correct. Bonnie tried what is suffering. Uh, The correct response here is the problem of evil. Daily Devil number one is really early in the round. It's pick number two. It's in the plant world category. Amal has 200. The other two haven't gotten in, so he wagers 1,000. And he gets the clue. Millions of cloned Somai Yoshino types of these trees were planted in Japan, some to celebrate victory over Russia in 1905. Is that correct with what are cherry trees? That's right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amal is at 3,000. Bonnie is at 4,600. John is at 4,400. So they're all pretty close. And the double Jeopardy round categories are kings and queens, other walks of fame, bodies of water filed under B, essays, the star of Oscar's best picture, and words that start with two consecutive letters. Mm-hmm. I had the thought, you know, bodies of water filed under B could just be like bodies of water with B in quotation marks, but the correct responses do not all have B in them. So, right. Would not work. Never mind. Yep. I feel like words that start with two consecutive letters missed an opportunity to have the word mnemonic in there. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. They went for kind of more pedestrian words that start with two sec- consecutive letters. Uh, effort, yeah. absorbent, hip bone. Ghee is a fun one from a Sanskrit word for to sprinkle. It's a clarified butter used in South Asian cooking. Uh, Bonnie that got that one and it's ghee. Um, and then uh, at the $2,000 level, demographics. I thought they were mostly pretty accessible. Yeah, I thought so too. And the uh, the Oscar the star of Oscar's best picture uh, category sounded like it was going to be challenging, but I thought that one also was was fairly accessible, and I think they did get almost all of those. Yeah, they missed yeah. the two thousand. Yes, uh, she was nominated for best actress for The Shape of Water, in which she didn't have much dialogue but did get a singing scene. Uh, I didn't know her name. That's Sally Hawkins. Daily Double number two comes up as the 10th pick at the $1,200 level of Other Walks of Fame. John finds it and wagers 2600 of his 9600 Amal's at 3000 and Bonnie is at 7400 And he gets the clue. 
Jackie Chan and Chow Yun-fat are two of the many local stars honored on this Asian city's Avenue of Stars on Victoria Harbor. And he gets that one correct with what is Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the Avenue, but I recognized Victoria Harbor. Daily Double number three is in the essays category at the $1,600 level. It's clue number 19. Amal finds it. He is in third place at 5,400. Bonnie's at 8,600, and John is up at 17,400. And Amal wagers 5,300, everything but 100. He gets the clue Joan Didion stole from Yates for the title of her essay collection, Slouching Towards This Place. He gets correct with what is Bethlehem. Yeah, I feel like we've touched on both Joan Didion and Yates um, mm-hmm. in connection with this. Maybe in a quiz or something? I mean, <laughs> poetry, particularly romantic poetry, has been a recurring theme, I think, on this podcast. Yeah. Yates is more modern, isn't he? Is he modern? Is he yeah, considered I'm pretty... modern? I guess. I mean, I guess he's in that turn-of-the-century time. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's more he's more modern, I think. Okay. Um, See clearly, I still haven't learned it. <laughs> so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, John is in the lead with twenty one thousand. Amal has fourteen thousand three hundred, and Bonnie is still in with nine thousand eight hundred. And we have the final Jeopardy category, International Business. And the clue, the effect named for this company founded in 1943, refers to increased value of a product to a consumer whose own labor is needed. Bonnie responded, what is the IKEA effect? And I thought she was joking. And then we found out that was correct. It is the (laughs) IKEA effect. Yeah. Yeah, once you put something together yourself, apparently, you value it more. Yeah, you get that sense of pride, like, I did that. Uh, I built that. Hmm. I made that. I mean, I know the I built that feeling. <laughs> I, I will say, I don't get that feeling with Ikea products. <laughs> yeah, like, I, there are things that, like, I'm proud I made, but usually with Ikea stuff... Like, by the time I'm done making it, I have half a mind to chuck the whole thing out the window, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, the IKEA effect is dampened on actual IKEA products, in my experience. Uh, Bonnie wagers everything but $5, 9795 So, she moves up to $19,595. Amal has it correct with what is the IKEA effect, and he has wagered every single dollar he has, which... It's great when you get it right. (laughs) Yes. He, I think, should have wagered, like, almost nothing. Because we're expecting John to drop just below where Amal is right now. Yeah. I guess if if he's decided that he's guarding against Bonnie's All-In, he may as well go pretty big. Um, Mm. Yeah. But that's, I guess that's a, he's in a, he's in a, conundrum there all right okay i've talked myself around to it it's fine and john responded what is the chia pet effect which 
occurred to me as a joke, so I, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, we were we were thinking alike there. Um, he's wagered 7,777, so he's dropping down to 13,223, and Amal is our winner. And on Thursday, we have Lisa O'Brien, a stay-at-home mom and community volunteer from Edina, Minnesota. Doug Small, a restaurant manager from Ypsilanti, Michigan. And Amal Darai, a product manager originally from Lexington, Massachusetts, who has now won $43,200. And the Jeopardy round categories are Icons of Technology, The Plays the Thing, State Parks, Celebrity Sibling Surnames, that's hard for me to say, In a Teacup, and Goodbye with B-I in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. The plays the thing category hit a lot of like you sh- like if you're trivia you should know plays. Mm, yeah. Two hundred dollar was waiting for Godot. Estragon and Vladimir meet up with Lucy and Pozzo, but not the title character of this play. A real Beckett of laughs. That's waiting for Godot. Four hundred dollar was about Willie Loman, and that's death of a salesman. Six hundred dollar was uh, he created strong female characters in Hedda Gabler and A Doll's House. That's Henrik Ibsen. The $800 clue was the Iceman Cometh. So Chili Play by Eugene O'Neill was was the big clue there. Mm -hmm. And the $1,000 level was about a Chekhov play uh, with a family who has to sell their estate, and that's the Cherry Orchard. Yes. Yeah, those are all kind of trivia, canon kind of plays. I think I actually like I know I know all of them like for trivia purposes, but the only one that I've actually um, ever seen is Death of a Salesman, and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just I just know them like as a trivia player. I do not know them as a as a theater goer. Right. right. Daily Double Number One comes up in the State Parks category at the six hundred dollar level as the twenty second pick. Lisa finds it. Uh, she's at 4400 at this point to Amal's 1000 and Doug's 2400 And she wagers just 1000 And she gets the clue with boating, camping, and fishing. Alabama's Mayor State Park is on this bay that's an arm of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and she correctly responds, what is Mobile Bay? Mm-hmm. The $400 clue in Goodbye. Zoologists don't consider the American buffalo a buffalo. They use this word instead. That is a bison. Now, that's an important trivia thing to know, but the University of Colorado buffaloes will insist that they are buffaloes, not bison. You'd be surprised how many people in Colorado get in an argument about over uh, whether it's okay to call a bison a buffalo or not. That is a discussion I've had to be a part of more than once in my life. Hmm. Just letting you know. Probably not a lived experience for a lot of people, so you're welcome, everyone. Anyway. Speaking of buffalo, I have never understood that sentence that's just the word buffalo seven times. People have tried to explain it to me, and I'm really good at language nerd stuff, but Uh, something about it just won't click for me. Buffalo, 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 buffalo? Buffalo. Yes, that one. When when you, like, break it apart, it can make sense, but it's, it's just kind of a goofy thing. It's the word buffalo eight times in a row, and I can make it make sense with, like, up to five times. Yeah, yeah. Any more than that, it's like, I don't know where this is. I'm like, I'm confused. I've lost track of it. What part of speech am I on? 
Oh, 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 I just found something that made it make sense. Buffalo Bison, that other Buffalo Bison bully, also bully, Buffalo Bison. <laughs> um, all right, that helps. Okay, cool. Now I now I sort of get it, maybe, for the moment. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> all right, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Lisa's in the lead at 8,600, Doug has 3,200, and Amal has 1,600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Born During the Civil War, Gods and Goddesses, TV Locales, Public Transportation, My Chemical Romance, and Vocabulary. When we had Born During the Civil War come out, I kind of, my approach to a category like that is to kind of mentally kind of do some math and then think these will probably be people who are known for things that happened between, let's say, like 1885 and like 1930-ish, which is still a broad range, you know, but I feel like during the Civil War can make you inclined to think of things too historically early. And it's helpful to kind of turn that into people who were adults uh, (laughs) in the late 19th and early 20th century. Let's see. Oh, they struggled with the gods and goddesses category. Yeah, yeah they did. I, you know, I had that gratifying feeling of getting the things that the people on TV didn't get. Uh, mm-hmm. I ran that category. That was oh nice. Was, yeah, I couldn't remember Ishtar, but other than that, I I got mm-hmm. all of them. Oh, yes. you go ahead. Uh, Ishtar, yeah, Ishtar is like possibly the most like prominent of the old Babylonian. And Assyrian goddess, like Sumerian, like around there. Yeah, all of those mm-hmm. kind of overlap. Uh, I thought the hardest one was a $1,200 clue. I realize you can get it from context otherwise, but uh, it's atop Mayan deity. Kulkulkan uh, is sometimes depicted as a feathered one of these real life creatures. Also the meaning of his name. Now, obviously, unless, unless someone speaks Mayan, which I doubt any people who are on Jeopardy uh, will, you know, that's not a common language. You can know that there is a comparable Aztec deity who is a feathered serpent or feathered snake. Mm-hmm. That was Quetzalcoatl. But yeah, so that's how you'd get it from there. But I thought that was a lot harder than Anubis, the Egyptian deity of mummification with canine, yeah. like, canine traits. Like I thought Anubis was much more knowable than Kukulkan. Yeah. Yeah. Egyptian jackal god, I feel, is, is more, access- more accessible than... Uh... Than uh, Kukulkan or uh, or Ishtar, I would think. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the vocabulary category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Amal finds it. He is at twenty four hundred. Doug is at thirty six hundred, and Lisa is up at eighty six hundred. This is only pick number three in the round, uh, so he has some catching up to do, and he bets it all, which is smart. Gets the clue. The name of this job that provides childcare is a French phrase meaning equal. He gets correct with what is an au pair. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have I have like a small au pair rant. <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, people should should pay their au pairs appropriately because there's a lot of like au pair abuse around mm-hmm. um, or like exploitation. But also, then there's this thing that happens where people are not kind of familiar with au pairs and like, are like we haven't had an au pair, but are like, oh, you know, au pair, like very wealthy, hoity toity. Mm-hmm. But like the the whole the whole deal with an au pair is it's like a young student 
who comes and lives in your home and like does childcare and studies, you don't have to pay them like an adult professional salary because they're like late teens, early 20s, like in the process of getting a degree, like kind of having a study abroad ish experience in your home, you know, and so like, an au pair is actually like the more financially accessible way of yeah of having a nanny yeah but it's got a french name and so people who have not kind of been immersed in that that kind of world um mm-hmm. get sort of intimidated by it it also if you uh <laughs> pastors often have um, i don't want to say often have au pairs but like because pastors jobs often come with houses that are larger than we need like an au pair is a way that many pastors kind of convert a large house that comes with your job into a workable childcare arrangement you know uh, mm-hmm. if somebody can live in your house and that's part of their you know kind of their deal like that's helpful that's neither here nor there <laughs> um <laughs> dilly double number three is in the born during the civil war category at the 1600 dollars level it's the 23rd pick and Doug finds it. He has 7,600. He wagers 4,000 of that. Um, Lisa's at 11,800. And Amal is at 6,400. So Doug's trying to get into a close second place with this wager. And he gets the clue. This president's first wife, Alice, and his second wife, Edith, were both born during the early days of the war in 1861. And he correctly responds, who is Theodore Roosevelt? At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Amal is at 8,000, Doug is at 14,800, and Lisa is at 14,600. So it's a very close, almost as close as you can be between first and second place, which makes wagering rather tricky. They get the final Jeopardy category, Literary Inspirations, and the clue, the now-debunked theories of Luigi Galvani influenced the science in this 1818 novel. Amal... Got it correct with what is Frankenstein. And he wagered everything but a dollar, so he jumps up to 15999 Lisa <clears throat> made a small bet, a good second place bet, of 1500 And she also got it correct with what is Frankenstein. So she gets up to 16100 which covers Amal's double up and gets her above Doug if he gets it wrong. And uh, he did get it wrong. He put, what is the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? He made a cover bet. So he drops down to $199, uh, which means that Lisa is the winner. Uh, You know, I I read Frankenstein for the first time, like, a month ago. Really? Yeah, and it is so very different than I was led to believe it would be by every like representation of the story mm. in movies and TV. It was profoundly different. There there's no Igor. Where did Igor come from? Mhm. What is that? Where is the mad scientist in like a a castle on the hill like channeling lightning? That's not in the story. Yeah, in the story he's like kind of a a tired guy in a lab. He's a he's a grad student. <laughs> yeah. That's what he is. He's yep. a grad student doing research work, <laughs> like working on a thesis project. He's like I went to study at university and I got really excited about a topic and then I did it. And then mm-hmm. I realized that I'd created something terrible and maybe caused it to be worse than it could have been 
if I had just treated it like, but whatever. Like the themes in it are interesting, but yeah, the story was profoundly different than I thought. Like, there's no angry mob. Mm-hmm. There's no he. There's never. There's no doctor defending the monster before you know the townsfolk with torches and pitchforks. Like mm-hmm. nothing that I had been led to believe what that story would be was what it actually was. Yeah, and the, I mean, it's been a while since I read it, but like the the like sort of deep sadness and loneliness and like the emotional experience of the monster being a big focal point um, mm-hmm. also is yeah. not kind of how the how the movies and stuff are. Maybe maybe you knew that would be there. I don't know. I mean, granted, from like young Frankenstein, there's a little bit of that. <laughs> but like, But no, like, yeah, the, the monster being able to just like express himself eloquently mm-hmm. and being like, I would like a companion because yeah. literally no one will love me. Mm-hmm. yeah it's very different than what i anticipated no i i read frankenstein when i was pretty young i think i was 15 or 16 when i read it and so i feel like i i encountered for other frankenstein media through the lens of having read the novel i mean i sort of i knew like obviously i knew frankenstein as like a a character right like you know i think you're 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 two or three years old when you first start seeing like the monsters right. with the with the neck bolts right but yeah, yeah no I, I i uh read the novel relatively early and but yeah that's uh there's a pretty stark disparity you're very right and on friday we have the contestants paul pompetti a system administrator from portsmouth rhode island susan mcmillan an arabic translator from portland maine and Lisa O'Brien, a stay-at-home mom and community volunteer from Medina, Minnesota, whose one-day cash winnings total 16100 And we have the Jeopardy round categories History, Movie Roll TV Roll, Dinosaurs, Cathay Society, Gimme the Numbers, and Monkey Business, Monkey in quotation marks. I was pleased with myself for knowing the... Um, thousand dollar level of dinosaurs uh they had a picture there and the clue was the stegosaurus lived 150 million years ago this even more heavily armored grade a relative came 80 million years later grade a i think maybe they're trying to clue you that it starts with an a that would be Um, my only guess yeah yeah um ankylosaurus is how i always said that although i don't think that's how dr oz pronounced it I think it's Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus, yeah. Is how I have I have heard it. I mean, we can't ask it, so ultimately, if you say it wrong, yeah, an- yeah. Google <laughs> Google says Ankylosaurus, hmm. which I had to relearn very recently in studying for like Jeopardy because I always thought it was Ankylosaurus. Oh no! I had the Y yeah, and feel- transposed. I think they would take Ankylosaurus because mm-hmm. it is. Clearly, either I read it to myself wrong or I learned it from somebody who read it to themselves wrong. Yeah. Um, I think it would be acceptable because, like, all the letters are there and in the right order, although the pronunciation is not standard. Right. But, yeah, if you if you switch them, then you're in trouble, uh, which we'll encounter later in this game. That's right, we will. In the history category, the $800 level, we found out that Vikings acted as bodyguards of the byzantine monarch which i thought was really interesting i did not know that yeah that's surprising yeah the clue is established in the 10th century 
The Varangian Guard was an elite force of Vikings acting as bodyguards of this empire's monarch. Paul guessed mm-hmm. the Ottoman. Susan asked the whole or guessed the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, both were incorrect. It's the Byzantine. I just really mm-hmm. uh, I knew the Vikings had ranged that far into the Mediterranean, and but to think that they were like acting as you know bodyguards is really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is that is funny. Also, the the Ottoman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Byzantine Empire all just sort of get mushed together in my brain. Yeah. So it was it was funny to have them all come up in a row <laughs> like that. Maybe maybe other people's brains do the same thing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the Give Me the Numbers category at the eight hundred dollar level. Susan finds that she is in the lead at thirty six hundred. Lisa's at 200, Paul's at 1400, and she makes it a true daily double. And she gets a clue. It's the difference in the number of U.S. states in 2020 versus the number of U.S. states in 1790. And she takes a guess with what is 37, and that is correct. Uh, In 1790, we still only had the original 13. She was probably Mm -hmm. thinking, were there more states by then? Yep. Were there more than 13 by 1790? I have no way of knowing, so I'll just guess 37. That's what went through my head anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I had that same thought process. And then I thought, if they had started adding more states, I don't think that they would be asking about 1790, if that makes sense. Like, you're right. you're supposed to have kind of a rough idea how we go from 13 to 50, but you shouldn't necessarily know it down to like year by exact. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It made sense in the context of like jeopardy of what they'd be asking for. So yes. Although at the thousand dollar level, the next clue down, um, we had more, more precision than I am used to jeopardy asking for to the nearest million miles it's the equivalent of one astronomical unit, the distance from the Earth to the sun. Uh, Susan knew it. It's 93 million yeah. miles. 93 million miles is one AU. But I was surprised. It, it seems Jeopardy doesn't often ask for that. And I would have expected them to go the other way, um, you know, to, to say, you know, uh, 93 million miles is this distance or something like that. Yeah, it's equivalent um, to one of these units. But I, I mean, I think 93 million miles as the rough distance to the sun is is known enough. Yeah, no, it's it, it's fair. It's just a it's a it's a little trickier than than Jeopardy often would go for a thousand. I mean, you know, it's it's the bottom level, but it's still we're still in single Jeopardy. Sure. Yeah, but no, it's you know, it's it's known enough. It's a number I've I've worked with <laughs> <laughs> in my time. Um, yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lisa is in third place at 400. She has had a rough, rough start. Susan is in the lead at 7,600 and Paul is at 4,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, farewell to the author, opera settings, multi-capital countries, this and that, no doubt, and entertainment add a letter, uh, which required two titles, one letter different. That was a fun category. Yes. Yes, agreed. I did not do super well in it. Hmm. We had a couple of triple stumpers at the 
at the bottom two clues of no doubt and i thought they were very specific uh mm-hmm. at the 1600 dollars level thanos in endgame says i am this very certain 10 letter word it doesn't turn out that way uh they're looking for inevitable there nobody hazards a guess and at the two thousand dollar level this 16 letter word is often found before evidence when there's no doubt as to the conclusion paul tries preponderance a preponderance of evidence Mm -hmm. that's incorrect they're looking for incontrovertible um so i thought those were tough ones to try and come up with yeah i thought so the 16 letter word is like there's no way i'm going to count to 16 in the time allotted yep uh Mm -hmm. i mean i knew I am inevitable from Endgame, but that's just because I remember that line. Like, you have to remember yeah. that line or not. It just, like... Mm-hmm. There's really no other way to get it. Yeah. Daily Double number two comes up quite late in the round in the farewell to the author category at the $800 level. Uh, it's the 25th pick. And Susan finds it. Um... She's been having a pretty good round. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, she is at 17,600 to Paul's 6,800. And Lisa is 400 in the red at this point. So she wagers 4,000 and gets the clue on his 1875 passing in Copenhagen. It was said, though his eyes were closed in children's hearts, he would live forever. And she knew that one. It is Hans Christian Andersen. I think I remember more easily because of the Danny Kaye movie. Do other people know that movie? Is that like just an obscure... I don't know that movie. It's like a musical movie from the 1950s. Wow. I watched it a couple times when I was a kid. I think it's the origin of the song Thumbelina, if you know that one. I mean, obviously, Hans Christian Andersen wrote the story Thumbelina. But I think there's like a, there's like a Raff, there's a Raffy performs the song Thumbelina. And I think that that song was written for that movie, but I could be in, I could be incorrect. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, uh, so she goes up to uh, over 20,000. It's really solid game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before they revealed that clue, um, they had a score correction regarding the farewell to the author category a few clues before they had at the $1,600 level we had the clue in 1881 some 30,000 mourners turned out in St. Petersburg for the funeral of this man one of the greatest writers of all time and they had a picture Uh, Susan tried who is Tolstoy and then Lisa clearly was trying to say who is Dostoevsky um, but her pronunciation was not correct enough she added added an oi sound on the first syllable like doistroyevsky i think i think that's what what was too much yes yeah so doistroyevsky um is is not correct Mm -hmm. but really rough break yeah that's a a big swing right Mm mm-hmm and only a couple clues after the second daily double, we get daily double number three. It is at the $1,600 level in entertainment at a letter. Lisa finds it. Uh, she has managed to get herself out of the hole. She is up to 800 and she kind of chuckles at like, you know, this is, 
I, I have nothing to work with. Uh, she wagers only 700. She probably doesn't want to go into the red. She probably wants to play Final Jeopardy, which I get, because it's pick number 27. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she gets a clue. Add a letter to a Leslie Karen favorite, and you get a Ben Affleck not-so-favorite. And she guessed what is Gigi and Gili, but after the buzzer had gone off. So she didn't mm-hmm. even get credit for getting it right. Yeah. She just had a rough, rough go of it. Yeah. And Gigi and Gili are not an easy pull. No. Um, you know, I'm- so like all credit to her. You could have let me stand there forever. And I don't think I would have ever got- gotten it. I mean, I got Gili right away. Mm. But I don't think I was gonna. I might have gotten to Gigi from that, but I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the round, uh, Lisa is still at one hundred. Paul's at seventy two hundred. Susan has a lot game with twenty five thousand six hundred. And uh, we have the final Jeopardy category: nineteenth century Americans. And the clue. In 1869, he moved to Yosemite Valley and was the first to say the area was formed by glacial erosion, a theory generally accepted today. Lisa responds, who is Ansel Adams? That is not correct. Um, And she's wagered all 100 of her dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, So she drops to zero. Paul tries who is Pike. I thought these were both very uh, smart, incorrect guesses. Yeah. Ansel Adams, of course, is the um, the famous landscape photographer. I think the year's not quite right for him. Um, Pike, uh, Paul is thinking of, like, Pike's Peak. Zebulon Pike. Yes. He's wagered 6999 so he drops down to 201 um, So he's trying to kind of keep his... He, he, it's double locked. He's, he's mm-hmm. keep trying to keep second place. And Susan has it correct. Um, and she talked in her little interview segment about visiting national parks. Um, so it's kind of a fitting moment. Uh, she knows that this is John Muir. And she's wagered $10,000. Um, and so we'll see her again on Monday. Yes, we will. Very impressive game. Yeah, really solid game from Susan. I can't wait to see what she does on Monday. Yeah. All right, so that's the end of the week, and this is the point at which we remind you that we have a Patreon. Uh, we have uh, a couple new patrons uh, who we mentioned in the previous weeks, but we want to remind you that it is there. It is patreon.com slash you can find some bonus content there, and uh, if you like the never-ending promise that we will put more stuff there, then hey, there you go. That's what mm-hmm. we do, is constantly promise that we will put more stuff there. Uh, <laughs> but it's there. And uh, of course, if you wanted to leave us a rating or review, particularly a review, we would be happy to read it on the podcast and give you a quick shout-out. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but we do want to encourage you to continue, uh, you know, looking for opportunities to support social justice movements in your in your community. You know, the hopefully we're getting vaccinated at a rapid rate. Uh, things will be hopefully getting better as we move forward in that front, but that doesn't mean that other problems have fixed themselves. So, uh, mm-hmm. just you know, if you have that bandwidth and you have that ability, uh, find some 
find some ways to do so, we we continue to point out communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. Yes. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Yes, I do. Are we talking about MC Escher? We are not talking about MC Escher. Oh, that would have been so good. Uh, are we talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis? I considered it, and I looked at the Wikipedia page, and I got very overwhelmed, so that's a no. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, <laughs> damn you, Wikipedia editors. <laughs> Making it too uh, comprehensive. Uh, okay, are we doing an overview of the modern Olympics? We are not. Um... <laughs> I thought for sure. I was like, she's done. she's done world fairs. This is like straight... That is parallel to it. Ah. It is. It would be parallel. Um, I heard a name um, in one of these games that I hadn't heard in a long, long, long time. A name that came up in a in a slightly different context in like a history book I had when I was a kid. And so I thought I would look into this person. We're in Tuesday's game in the nurses category in the Jeopardy round at the $600 level. And the clue was Civil War nurse Dorothea Dix also worked to help people with this condition, often kept in cages, closets, and cellars. Uh, They were looking for mental illness there. Um, And I remembered coming across like a little bit about Dorothea Dix, who sort of ruled the Union army nurses with an with an iron fist um (laughs) in like a civil war book i had when i was a kid Mm -hmm. um and i i did not know about this other part of her life which turned out actually to be the much more um significant i think part of her life um so i i thought i'd look into her a little bit and she's kind of a cool figure so i thought we'd learn a little little bit about dorothea dix social reformer and civil war nurse so, Dorothea Lind Dix was born in 1802 in Hampton, Maine. She was the first child of three, born to Joseph Dix and Mary Bigelow. Um, her father was an itinerant Methodist preacher and bookseller. Uh, evidence suggests that she may have been neglected by her parents to some extent. Uh, she p- appears to have had a fairly unhappy and tumultuous childhood. Um, It seems like her father was likely alcoholic and abusive. Her mother suffered from uh, poor physical health and mental health. And she took on a lot of responsibility for the family and home, even in childhood. They moved around New England throughout her childhood, um, living in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I'm from, for a period of time, starting when she was 10. Uh, she went to live with her grandparents in Boston. Uh, Dr. Elijah Dix was a prominent Boston surgeon, uh, and his, her grandmother was Dorothy, Dorothy Lind Dix. Um, she went to live with them when she was 12. And then when she was 14, she returned to Worcester, Massachusetts uh, to live with an aunt and opened a private school for girls there at the age of 14. All the school teachers are kind of teenagers in this mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. part of history. In about 1821, so she's like 19, she uh, returns to Boston and opens a school there, uh, which was patronized by well-to-do families. Soon afterward, she also began teaching poor and neglected children out of the barn of her grandmother's house. 
at some point during this time, she also worked as a governess on Beacon Hill for the family of William Ellery Channing, who is a significant name in like American religious and philosophical history. He was a leading Unitarian intellectual as Unitarianism began to take shape. She wrote a number of books. She wrote a lot of, she wrote several books for children, devotional books, uh, stories, and kind of general knowledge, kind of school book, like primer kinds of things. Um, Her most successful book was called Conversations on Common Things. It was published in 1824 and reached its 60th edition by 1869. So it stayed in print and continued to be popular. She wrote uh, The Garland of Flora, which was published in 1829 and was one of the first two dictionaries of flowers published in the United States, along with Elizabeth Wirt's Flora's Dictionary. She suffered from poor health, and there is some evidence that she dealt with major depressive episodes. Uh, By 1836, um, when she was in her early 30s, her persistent health problems caused her to close her last school. And uh, she went to Europe for a couple of years to um, rest and recuperate and try and improve her health. While she was there, she met British social reformers who inspired her, including Elizabeth Fry, Samuel Tuke, and William Rathbone, with whom she lived during the duration of her trip. The Rathbones were Quakers and prominent social reformers, and at their home, she met their circle of men and women who believed that government should play a direct, active role in social welfare. Um, she was also introduced to the reform movement for care of the mentally ill in Great Britain, uh, which they, they called lunacy reform, because the language we've used about these things has changed quite right. a bit. <laughs> uh, While she was there, her grandmother passed away, leaving her a sizable estate, uh, which allowed Dorothea Dix to live comfortably and be, you know, financially provided for for the remainder of her life. She returned to Boston in 1837. But her her sort of ethical orientation was that, you know, even if you have enough money, you know, you should you should make something of yourself, do something meaningful and, you know, for the for the world with your life. So in 1841, a young clergyman asked her to begin a Sunday school class in the East Cambridge House of Correction in Massachusetts. And she took that on um, teaching Sunday school class to uh, to people who were in prison, where she first observed the inhumane treatment of uh, mentally ill people who were incarcerated uh, with criminals in the prison. And this motivated her to uh, undertake a tour to investigate how poor, mentally ill people were cared for throughout the state. She found that in most cases, towns were contracting with local individuals to care for mentally ill people who couldn't care for themselves and lacked family and friends to do so. The system was unregulated and underfunded and resulted in widespread abuse. Um, And she... published her results in a very fiery report. She would write a number of these reports over the years about different places, um, and they were called memorials. Mm. It's like a testimony to like what she has, you know, what she found in her investigations. Uh, So it was a memorial, uh, which she wrote to the state legislature. A quote from her 
this memorial about her, her findings in Massachusetts. I proceed, gentlemen, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth in cages, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. So she uh, began lobbying and advocating and was able to get a bill passed to expand the state's mental hospital, which was and is in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm not I think how that hospital functions has changed over the years, but it's still there. I, I, I've, I've seen it. I've been there. Mm-hmm. So she got that she got that hospital expanded so that people could be cared for in a facility rather than sort of sent off to random homes to, you know, to be dealt with however those private individuals chose to. In 1844, she was in New Jersey conducting a similar investigation, visiting jails and almshouses, and prepared a memorial for the New Jersey legislature, uh, giving detailed accounts of her observations and, and facts. She urgently appealed to the legislature to act and appropriate funds to construct a facility for the care and treatment of the mentally ill. Um, There were some political machinations around the funding, but due to her lobbying efforts, as well as her discovery of like a notable like jurist lawyer guy who had fallen on hard times and become mentally ill, whom she found in a county almshouse in terrible conditions. Ultimately, she was able to win the legislators over to her side and uh, and get legislation passed. So on March 25th, 1845, uh, New Jersey passed a bill for the establishment of a state facility. Uh, Dorothea Dix continued to travel around the country, conducting similar investigations and making reports, drafting legislation and advocating. Eventually, she did work in 15 states in the U.S., as well as in Canada, to establish state hospitals for the mentally ill. Um, She was doing this work in Illinois in 1846 and 1847. She was in North Carolina in 1848. Her first attempt to bring reform to North Carolina failed. However, after a board member's wife requested as a dying wish that her plea be reconsidered, uh, the bill for reform was approved. In 1849, when the North Carolina State Medical Society was formed, the legislature authorized construction of an institution in Raleigh for the care of mentally ill patients. Uh, Dix Hill Asylum, named in honor of Dorothea Dix's father was eventually opened in 1856 and 100 years later renamed the Dorothea Dix Hospital in honor of her legacy. Um, A second state hospital for the mentally ill was authorized in North Carolina in 1875 and then a hospital for the Negro insane in the eastern part of the state somewhat later, um, which I mentioned because Dorothea Dix was pretty racist about the topic of mental illness. She thought that mental illness was a condition that impacted civilized and cultivated people, specifically white people. Uh, she wrote, this is a quote from Dorothea Dix, content warning on it. The, the Negro and, and Indian rarely become subject to the malady of insanity, as neither do the uncivilized tribes and clans of European Russia and Asia. Insanity is the malady of civilized and cultivated life and sections and communities whose nervous energies are most roused and nourished. So she did some important work. She was also super problematic. So I don't want to sweep it under the rug. She published remarks on prisons and prison discipline in the United States in 1845. 
advocating reform in the treatment of non-mentally ill prisoners. In 1853, she visited Nova Scotia to study its care for the mentally ill. And during her visit, she traveled to Sable Island to investigate reports of mentally ill patients being abandoned there. The reports were largely unfounded, but while she was there, she assisted in a shipwreck rescue. And on her return to Boston, she led a successful campaign to send upgraded life-saving equipment to the island. The day after those supplies arrived, a ship was wrecked on the island, and because of the supplies she had procured for them, 180 people were able to be saved. Wow. Yeah. She did some work on a federal level for the Bill for the Benefit of the Indigent Insane, um, legislation which was to set aside about 12 million acres of federal land to be used for the benefit of the mentally ill. The proceeds from its sale would be distributed to the states to build and maintain asylums. The bill passed both houses of Congress, but was vetoed in 1854 by President Franklin Pierce, who argued that social welfare was the responsibility of the states. After this, Dorothea, Dix, Dorothea Dix's health deteriorated again. Um, she went on a convalescent tour of Europe in from 1854 to 1856, but kept doing the same kind of work while she was there. She investigated the conditions of mental hospitals in Scotland um, and found them to be in similarly poor conditions. She uh, did some work in the Channel Islands. Uh, she went on to Italy, where she had an audience with the Pope, Pope Pius IX, and prevailed upon him to inspect personally the atrocious conditions she had discovered in Italy's facilities. Uh, the Pope was receptive to her findings, visited the asylums himself, was shocked at their conditions, and thanked her for her work, saying in a second audience with her that a woman and a Protestant has crossed the seas to call his attention to these cruelly ill-treated members of his flock. And then she returned to the United States, and um, a few years later, as we know, the Civil War started. On June 10th, 1861, Dix was appointed Superintendent of Army Nurses by the Union Army. Um, she set guidelines for nurse candidates, and this is this is the part that I had heard about. She was strict. She had a very specific vision. Army nurses were to be aged 35 to 50, and they were to be plain looking. Um <laughs> Uh, they were to wear black or brown dresses without the hoop skirts that were fashionable of, at the time. No jewelry or cosmetics. So she was she was very concerned about protecting the nurses from the attention of doctors and soldiers by having them look and dress a certain way. She feuded with doctors and the and the um, the sort of male administrators and officials over control of medical facilities and the hiring and firing of nurses. She did some cool advocacy um, it, in the army. Male nurses were paid twenty dollars and fifty cents a month, and female nurses uh, received no pay and had to cover their own expenses. So she convinced the government to supply the nurses with food, transportation, housing. And ultimately, um, to pay them 40 cents a day for their work. There was some conflict around having female nurses in the hospitals at all. Many of the doctors and surgeons wanted only male uh, staff. To solve the impasse, the War Department introduced Order Number 351 in October 1863, granting both the Surgeon General and the Superintendent of Army Nurses the power to appoint female nurses, um, but it gave doctors the power of assigning employees and volunteers to hospitals, effectively relieved Dix of direct operational responsibility. 
I think that she was maybe not the most tactful manager of <laughs> uh, people problems. Um, right. Yeah, she was a firebrand. The uh, Army nursing program was noted for its policies of providing aid to Confederate soldiers as well as Union soldiers. Nurses under Dix's program provided what was often the only care available in the field to Confederate wounded. One nurse said the surgeon in charge of our camp looked after all their wounds, which were often in a most shocking state, particularly among the rebels. Dorothea Dix resigned from her post in August 1865. She later considered this part of her career to have been basically a failure. At the end of the war, she raised funds for the National Monument to Deceased Soldiers at Fortress Monroe. And then following the war, she resumed her crusade to improve the care of prisoners, disabled people, and mentally ill people. In 1881, she moved to into the New Jersey State Hospital, uh, formerly known as Trenton State Hospital, that she had been responsible for the building of um, years before. The state legislature had designated a suite in that hospital for her private use for as long as she lived. Um, so that's where she lived out her last days. Um, she carried on correspondence with people from England, Japan, and elsewhere. And uh, in her in the course of her career from 1843 to 1880, she helped to establish a total of 32 new mental hospitals across the United States, including in New York, Indiana, Illinois, Rhode Island, Tennessee, um, and more. And she aided in improving the care of many more and advocating for care for mentally ill people. Admittedly flawed. I don't think that we were doing a super great job at caring for the mentally ill in the, in the, in the 19th century. Um, but it also seems like she made things a little bit better, at least. She died on July 17, 1887, um, and was buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that is the life of Dorothea Dix. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of hospitals and, and like parts of like hospital facilities that are named after her to this day. Yeah, it's a name I've certainly heard, but admittedly knew next to nothing about. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so a little obscure for our deep dives, but, you know, sometimes there's, like, it's worth, especially, like, I was like, oh, I know that name. It was, like, in my, like, my favorite of my Civil War books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not a Civil War buff. I went through it. I went through a Civil War phase when I was in kind of elementary school, so I never really got to, got to go deep. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, it was fun to get to learn more about her. For sure. So, are you ready for a quiz? Yes. All right. I don't have a really strong theme for this quiz. It's, it's kind of related to the stuff that Dorothea Dix did. So we've got okay. like nursing, kind of like civil war, like men- history of mental illness. There's a bunch of stuff in here, um, sure. but it's a Dorothea Dix quiz. Okay. All right. So question one, um, I encountered some claims that Elizabeth Blackwell was passed over for the post of superintendent of army nurses in favor of Dorothea Dix. What is Blackwell's claim to fame? Elizabeth Blackwell. Oh, jeez. I know this name. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Blackwell. Oh, man, I know this name. Oh, this is gonna... Oh, this is gonna bother me so much that I don't get it. Um... Oh, I don't know. Uh, let's go with... I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's 
oh, I don't know, temperance. Mm. It's not a bad guess. Um, she was the first woman to get a medical degree or the first oh, female right. doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And her sister-in-law, um, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, uh, was the first female minister ordained in a mainstream Protestant denomination in nice. the United States. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's Elizabeth Blackwell. I, I'm not sure how reliable those claims are about her having been considered for this superintendent of army nurses role. Mm-hmm. But when I saw her name come up, I was like, oh, that's an interesting possible connection. All right. Question two. While Dorothea Dix oversaw official military nurses, uh, there were many nurses who served during the Civil War in a more unofficial kind of volunteer capacity, including what founder of the American Red Cross? Uh, I believe the founder of the American Red Cross is Clara Barton. That is correct. Yes. She did not want anything to do with Dorothea Dix. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, So you're at 10 points. Question three. Author Louisa May Alcott was a Civil War nurse serving under Dix's command. Um, And a few years later, Louisa May Alcott wrote her most famous work, Little Women, about four sisters whose father is away fighting for the Union in the Civil War. Can you name those sisters? We'll do two points each and and a two-point bonus if you get them all. No, because I've never read it and I've never seen it. There's <laughs> Joe. Yep. Beth. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh. Is Beth the one that dies? Mm hmm. Okay. Beth so is that, the one that dies. Yes. Uh, let's see. Joe. Beth. Anne. That's not correct. Uh, That's not correct. <laughs> And Harriet. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good name. I like that name. No, um, it, Meg and Amy are the other I two. Thought, oh my god. Okay. Amy came to mind and I'm like, no. No, that's yeah, because Amy's I know the... a person named Amy Beth and I'm associating Amy with the name Beth. That can't be mm-hmm. right. Yeah, Amy is the youngest one, the artist. Mm. The dramatic say, personality. Yeah. Although, although honestly, Joe also is a dramatic personality. But yeah, Amy's uh, Amy's the youngest, and and Meg is the oldest. Meg is uh, the one that Emma Watson played in the in the most recent adaptation. The kind of responsible, stable one. All right, you're at fourteen points. And question four: While Worcester Insane Asylum served the indigent mentally ill. Uh, McLean Hospital, which was actually founded somewhat or earlier, came to be the facility for the more socio socioeconomically privileged of uh, of Massachusetts. McLean was the facility where many years later, author Susanna Kaysen was hospitalized, inspiring her memoir, which was adapted into a 1999 movie starring Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie. What is the title of that work? The memoir and the film have the same title. These are things that are like, I knew these once, mm-hmm. and I am not remembering them. It's a two-word title that has a comma in it. Oh, geez. The only one that... The only thing that's coming to mind is Girl Interrupted. That's correct! Oh, wow. Okay, good. Woof. All right. Oof. I was like, is that 1999? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the memoir was 1993. The film was 1999. Wow. All right, you're at 24 points. Question five. Some decades after Dorothea Dix's work, another woman was instrumental in further reform of mental health care in the United States. Who is the journalist who had herself institutionalized for 10 days in the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island? I believe that is Nellie Bly. That is Nellie Bly. She is awesome. Yeah, she is. I mean, pretty much all the women you have mentioned so far have been awesome. Yeah. I happen to know more about Nellie Bly. (laughs) I don't actually know as much as I would like to about Nellie Bly. And I learned while I was researching this that uh, Blackwell's Island, where that asylum was, um, was subsequently renamed Roosevelt Island. Uh, It's it's the one that's like in the East River. I did not realize how close that was to me. You are at 34 points. And we're going to call this last clue, we'll call the category Historic Places. Historic places. I got 26. 26. All right. So for 60 points, if you are correct, Dorothea Dix was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1979. In what New York town famous for an 1848 event would you find the National Women's Hall of Fame? I know this. I know this because there's like a document named for it like a declaration seneca falls seneca falls is correct yes Mm. yes i am a man who knows a few things about women's history (laughs) i feel extremely accomplished Good. Uh, yeah, Seneca, Seneca Falls was uh, where the Seneca Falls Convention took place in 1848, mm-hmm. uh, producing the Declaration of Sentiments. Yes. Uh, yes. So, Kyle, you finish with 60 points. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That was excellent. Very good quiz. And thank you. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I had fun with this one. So thanks, Kyle, for potting with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you, listeners, for listening. So fun to spend this time with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or a review if you wouldn't mind. It helps us with the algorithms. If you're interested in finding our Patreon, we're on patreon.com slash potentpotables. And even if you're not, you can still tell your friends about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy! episodes and a deep dive and quiz. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.